I consider myself a tinkerer, a, a hacker, if we say who goes and starts working on stuff and modifying it and making it do what they want. Steve said to me, well, you know, I've had a lot to do with two of the three great window systems, so I don't think that open source is going to do it. From Palo Alto, California, Silicon Mines. The importance of open source software is incalculable, and Bruce Perrins tells us why on this edition of Silicon Mines. Bruce Perrins is one of the central figures of the open source movement. It was his leadership in the late 90s that helped bring about the open source definition, which he talks about later in this interview. Instead of starting at the beginning of his career, I opened by simply asking, what exactly is open source? Open source is when a programmer shares their work with others under a set of rules. The way we used to get software, and I guess the way a lot of us still get it, is we buy it in a store or online, we download it from the app store, and it's proprietary software. So we're warned rather verbosely that we're not to copy it, not to give it to others, etc. Open source kind of rejects that, and we do it all legally because it's our own software. We've created it for this purpose. We give it to the world, and we say, hey, world, you can use all of the software, and not only can you use it, but you can extend it because I'm also giving you the source code. Here is the software, which you can adapt to your own needs. And I think the best example is the very first piece of open source software that I released. I was working at Pixar before Pixar was actually an animation studio. We had a non-compete with Lucasfilm, so we were making image computers that could be used for animation. I developed a memory allocation debugger, and this was a problem that really was horrible for programmers, because if they had a memory allocation bug, it didn't pop up in the same place every time, and it made their program just fail in different ways, and they couldn't see where the problem was. And I wrote something which I called Electric Fence that took all of these problems and just isolated them immediately. I sent it out on the net because Pixar didn't make memory allocation debuggers. That wasn't their business. The next day, I got back full documentation in my email. Why would someone have written documentation? Well, he went to distribute this software for his own colleagues to use in his company. It didn't meet his documentation standards. There was just a short text file that I'd written. So he wrote all the documentation and sent it back to me. Now, when he sent it back... That put an obligation on me. The obligation was that I would now maintain that documentation and distribute it with my software, which I do to this day more than, I think, 20 years later. 
people have extended the software in other ways, and it's been a very good relationship for all of us in that we've gotten very useful software that keeps getting bigger and more powerful. We don't pay for it. We can fix its bugs when there's a problem. We don't have to convince some technical service person that it's broken. We can just fix it. I was thinking about covering this a little bit later, but you've just dispelled a perception that open source programmers are anti-corporate. They're really not, are they? Well, most open source software creators are employed, and they're creating the software on the time of their employer with that employer's uh, active support. And the reason for that is that companies need a lot of software for their operations. But most companies don't sell software, or even if they sell software, they sell a specific kind of software, and they don't make profit on all different kinds of software. And in the development of an open source project, of a you know, piece of software, uh, how much of this is actually guided strictly, and how much of it is done you know, with an unwritten rule? Well, it's not so much an unwritten, unspoken rule. Partnerships in open source development actually have licenses that come with them. The idea is that you put your software under an open source license. Anyone can take that and use it, extend it, redistribute it legally. The way the licenses are structured, once you have that license, you don't have to sign you don't have to send someone a contract before you do this. You just take the license, use the software, and if you make your own software, your own extensions, you generally put that same license on them. So one of the most important things that we do is that we get rid of a lot of the bureaucracy you don't have to have two lawyers meet between your companies before you share software. You don't have to sign anything. You don't have to lick a stamp. It's not really an unwritten partnership. These rules are very well known now, and very many companies decide very explicitly to join an open source community after they've started using a particular piece of open source software and have found that it's good for their company. Let's talk about one of the big open source consumer projects out there, OpenOffice, which has had a pretty colorful history. It started off as Star Office, and um, now it's been forked off of uh, OpenOffice into uh, Libre and also Apache OpenOffice. Well, um, we used to have a company that was paid to make it work, and that was Sun Microsystems. And... They had commercial customers for what they called at that time open office. They had the cooperation of IBM. They had a very formal corporate structure for maintaining this. In other words, they tried to make it as much like proprietary software, as much like the way that Microsoft Office was developed as possible. And you know what? It didn't work very well. Eventually... Uh, Oracle bought Sun Microsystems, and at that point, the developers, other than uh, Oracle, Sun and IBM, decided to abscond and form a nonprofit project called LibreOffice. Within months of the formation of that project, the quality 
has increased rather a lot. It turns out that just the friction between corporations and also having company goals and having to make the software meet the company goals rather than just be developed to be good software was actually holding it back. That's unfortunately the case with a lot of corporate software. You know, we'd all like everyone to develop the very best software that they can, but unfortunately that's not always what a company has to do. Sometimes a company has to consider budgets, sometimes a company has to hold back a product so that another product sells better. You get companies who actually don't like to release a new and very powerful product shortly after people have paid for a less powerful one because it makes people who've bought their stuff look dumb. Now, in open source, we don't have that sort of problem. We release the software. We don't charge for it. We have various collaborations that work on it. And I've actually been very pleased with the improvement of quality in LibreOffice. It's the only thing I use, and my kid uses it for school. My wife uses it. Uh, she works for the U University of California. We work with files from Microsoft Office all the time using LibreOffice. We're not having those robustness problems. What are the best conditions for an open source project? Uh, you know, where does open source work best? And, uh, and under what circumstances does it not work so well? Well, we've really made it with business. Business is using open source very extensively. Servers in general are built on open source. So if you're serving a website or something, you have a Linux system, you have Apache or another open source web server on that system, you're probably using an open source framework like Ruby on Rails. And if you're using the cloud, that's pretty much all that works in the cloud because the proprietary software manufacturers haven't really worked out how to license their products for cloud use well. They generally charge much too much for it. There's a pretty strong feeling, it seems, that uh, no one really owns the cloud. The profit is in uh, helping companies use the cloud, not necessarily writing and selling cloud software. Yeah, so what we get really is that there's a lot of software in the world that's very important, very necessary, and won't necessarily make you a profit if you build it. Without open source, really, that software doesn't get made. Or if it gets made, it gets made inside of one company and le never leaves their doors. And it's very, very expensive to make it that way. Open source is much less expensive for that sort of software because you take all of the cost and risk of its development and you distribute it across many companies. Now, that's actually how proprietary software works, too. Proprietary software is one company develops software, and then a lot of people pay for it. So that also distributes the cost across many companies, but not the risk. The company that develops it has all the risk, unlike with open source development. And also, if you can't get investors 
to pony up ahead of time for you to develop that software, you just can't make proprietary software because you need to figure you're paying people for years before you can sell the first copy. With open source, it's a very different thing. In general, people sit down, they start writing, they get something that wouldn't necessarily sell as proprietary software, but it's usable by others, and then the others jump on and start improving that. So we take this big, expensive part of developing proprietary software out of the equation, and thus you're seeing a lot of software that you can really only get in open source developed today, especially for business. Now let's look at where open source isn't working. It does not work as well for normal people yet. So if you look at smartphones, we have two competitive smartphone platforms. We have Android, which is an open source platform with some proprietary pieces here and there. And then we have the iPhone. And if you walk into an Apple store, I'm sure you've noticed just how packed with excited people it is. We don't really get to the average person with open source software the way that Apple does. Now let's look at how we have reached the normal person. Firefox is a good example. Lots of people use Firefox. It happens that Google Chrome is also open source, even though it's developed exclusively by one company. Android is reaching normal people pretty well. And... We don't have um, quite the buzz that app stores have, but if you look in the app stores, you'll find that a lot of things that you buy in the app store are actually open source. And I think this is a really big question, one that I've been sort of waiting to ask, and that is, is the movement toward open source axiomatic? And And what I mean by that is, Will the software that we buy from single developers now eventually get swallowed up by open source or get replaced by open source? I don't know. Um, I think that proprietary software has a future. There is some software that I think is better in proprietary form, but actually it's, it's unusual software. For example, TurboTax. It's not written for love the way we write our open source software for love. It's not written even by programmers. It's to a great extent the work of tax accountants. It has to be very current on the tax laws, and it needs a really strong focus and attention to detail so that they don't get billions of people's taxes wrong some year. So I happily pay for TurboTax every year. If you look at the history of open source, we've always faced the prospect that we could not get over one hump or another. For example, at one time, there was no open source database, and we couldn't be very useful without a database. Now we have dozens of good databases. Um, there was no open source window system. And I remember working at Pixar, I was actually leaving Pixar to work on Linux and open source after 12 years there and about 20 years in film after, uh, overall. I walked into Steve Jobs' office and I said, 
you still don't buy this open source stuff. And Steve said to me, well, you know, I've had a lot to do with two of the three great window systems. And by this, he meant the next window system and the Mac window system. And he said, and everyone required a billion dollar laboratory to make. So I don't think that open source is going to do it. Two years after he said that to me, Steve stood on a stage at Macworld with a slide that said, open source, we love it, and introduced the Safari web browser, which Apple had incorporated open source into because that was the best and easiest way of making it. Not only had we gotten over the Windows system hump, but we were making Windows system software that was so good that Apple felt they should use it. Now, the hump of working with the average person, getting them to like the software as much as we like it as programmers, is a harder one because it takes a lot of empathy. It takes understanding people by the programmer who don't work uh, the way that you do, who don't like the things that you do, who who aren't interested in software for software's sake. They just want to use it. It's not clear to me that open source will become very strong in that sort of understanding and will start to give average people the entire environment that they want. Obviously, there's some that do that already. There are some who are more concerned with their freedom. They don't want Apple saying what they can and can't run. And they run a Linux desktop. And of course, there are lots of people who have Linux in their homes and they don't even know it. They never think that their Android tablet is running open source. They never think that their router, their printer, practically everything else that they have that has an embedded operating system really has a lot of Linux and open source inside it. So we are reaching these people, but I would really like to beat that app store and have that kind of buzz. And I don't know if I'll ever get there. Bruce Perrins grew up in Long Island and early on became a ham radio fan and operator. Academically, he was interested in broadcasting, theater, and electronics. So in the early 1980s, while at the New York Institute of Technology, Perrin's past on studying software. He says he thought of it as making databases that send people bills in the mail. And he ended up in the New York Tech Graphics Lab. Some of the people at that lab moved on to a company called Pixar. And later we all went and uh, worked for either George Lucas or Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs ended up owning Pixar. In the computer graphics lab, I had a very unique opportunity for 1981, which is that I had entire large computers running Unix that I could take down, that I could use on my own, not have to worry about any other users on them. Because back then, computer graphics took so much time that all of the computers were single user. We just figured we'd use all of the time of that computer making one picture. And this was a time when having a personal computer was still kind of unusual. So I learned Unix and C 
it helped that there were only a couple of books about them at the time. And Sounds like necessity was the inspiration to tackle software. Well, I've always been self-taught in computers. I um, learned a number of computing languages before I got to that laboratory and always learned them on my own. I actually went to the college department um, for computer science and asked to take some courses, but they wanted me to start at the very basics, and I was past them by that time. I figure I've gotten much farther than most of their graduates, so that's okay. How soon after this did you make your first open source program? Did you even know it was open source? Well, it was actually this very first program, uh, Electric Fence, in... um, believe I released that from Pixar in 1987. And I had seen, we then had Usenet. We didn't really have internet um, as it exists today. And there was a news group on the Usenet, which was called comp.sources. And people used to just send out source code on that news group not really even with a license. You could try it, and maybe it was useful, and maybe it wasn't. And at that time, a few very useful programs had come down that way. Larry Wall was very big at that time in developing them. So we had the patch program, uh, which Larry developed and Sounds very mundane today. It just takes a a patch to a program and incorporates it. But that was something we were doing manually with editors at the time. And Larry sent that out on comp sources, and it was very useful. And then Larry eventually wrote a programming language called Perl, which is uh, also very useful today. Uh, Other programs were coming down on comp sources, but... This wasn't organized. And Were these early pieces of software being stolen or misappropriated? No, and uh, we also would have things like people would send out these sources, and if their company was sensitive about it, they'd write educational use only or something like that. So in other words, if you tried to use them in a business, it wasn't quite legal, although this was sort of in the infancy of copyrighted software. So... We figured with open source that if you could not use it for your business, you would have no reason to work on it. In um, the 90s, we started working on Linux. And and Linux was one of these things that Linus, then a a lecturer at a college in Helsinki, sent out. It was 20,000 lines, not a big program for what it did, um, and wasn't meant to be any big thing. It it was a a clone, really, of the Unix operating system that would run on your PC. And it was legal to clone Unix because Unix was a federal standard of the United States. So all the information about it was public. They called it POSIX in that context. So I started working on a system that put all of the necessary programs on top of this Linux. For example, we added an editor, we added email, etc. And the particular version that I was working on was called Debian. So Debian was 
Linux plus all of the applications, and we called it a Linux distribution, and still do today. In working on that, we decided that it would be all software that was free for everyone to use. And Richard Stallman had promoted this philosophy of free software, but we did not have at the time a good definition of what free software was. Richard, it turns out, had written one, but it was buried in a newsletter that was only distributed in Xerox form and wasn't on the internet at the time. Debian was an important moment for you. And also how the open source definition comes about. You proposed guidelines for Debian on a private mailing list in 1997. Programmers made a number of contributions that you incorporated, and then it was released. And so that's how the Debian Free Software Guidelines part of the story comes in. But what happened next? A group of people at a meeting decided to promote open source as a way to market the idea of free software to business people. And they felt that the word free was going to confuse people. So they used the open source word instead. And um, I wasn't at that meeting, but Eric Raymond called me the next day and said, we're going to do this. And I said, well, great. I will take the Debian free software guidelines, which I've written, and um, we'll make them the open source definition. And so that's how the open source definition came about. Now, um, The open source definition is a statement of rights. It says that when there is open source software, you have the right to use it, you have the right to copy it, you have the right to redistribute it. So you give it to a friend that's legal and we encourage you to do it. And you have the right to modify it. You have the right to distribute those modifications to others. So in intellectual property speak, that's called creating a derivative work. You have the right to do that. You have the right to use it for any purpose, business or non-business, etc. And so these are all rights that you are given under the open source definition. And What we use the open source definition for is that people make licenses for the software. The license is actually what gives you all of these rights. Under uh, international copyright law, essentially everything is all rights reserved. Can't copy, can't do anything. The second it's written down. And we take that all rights reserved and we say oh, no, no, we're giving you rights. And here's a very broad set of rights. And at the end of this, we encourage you to give us the same rights when you do work like extending this software. So an open source license gives all of the rights that the open source definition asks for. And some of the licenses are called BSD, and GPL, the GNU General Public License, is something Richard Stallman made, actually made um, both of these. BSD was made by University of California, Berkeley, GPL by Stallman, 
were made before I wrote the open source definition. So to an extent, I was taking software that existed and making a definition that fit it. There must have been a a lot of electricity in the air. How did these open source teams, so to speak, take all this? We were very excited because we got working software and most of us had never met. Uh, We were working on different continents from each other and no one had thought this was possible until then. They thought you'd have to have software people working together. You'd have to have meetings. We didn't have any of that. We just emailed each other. When you look at the landscape of uh, the open source projects that are happening right now, what are some of the big ones or what are some of the new um, exciting ones that, that you are following these days? We keep getting new things. And the newest one, one that I'm very excited by and I'm spending a lot of my time on is open hardware. So this is designs for electronic devices or physical things, you know, even a sculpture, where the design is made in a digital form. Uh, For example, for one of those new 3D printers. And the design is shared with the same rules as open source software. And thus, um, you can now make various kinds of electronics, including entire radio receivers and transmitters, from open source plans. So, you're a ham radio operator who happens to be a software guy. Yeah, well, it turns out that uh, ham radio has actually been a part of this all along. When I started working on Debian... I was actually trying to make Linux for hams, and I never made Linux for hams, but I got caught up in Debian, and lots of hams use Linux today, so I'm not crying about it. But it's been a theme for me to support ways of people supporting themselves technologically and learning on their own technologically. And ham radio has been a very powerful mechanism for this, A ham has access to radio transmitters, has really one of the only legal ways to modify a high-power radio transmitter and go on the air. If you start being a, a what they call pirate broadcaster, eventually the FCC tracks you down, shuts you down, gives you a fine, etc. The hams can do things like that legally. Obviously, they're not playing music. They're talking with each other, but they work with very similar equipment. I consider myself a tinkerer, a, a hacker, if we say hacker in the original form of the term, just somebody who goes and starts working on stuff and modifying it and making it do what they want. Uh, and ham radio is obviously a powerful tool for that. Open source software is another one. Looking back at your path with plenty left to go, of course, what would you tell someone about the lessons you've learned and what advice would you give? What would I tell someone? Break rules. Do things in ways that people say are impossible. Believe in yourself. And some people are offended by this, but I think that part of being grown up 
is being able to work for yourself rather than a boss and bring in a profit and support your family that way. I think that a lot of people sort of stay in the cube for their whole lives and they never get to express their full creativity that way. Uh, they never get to understand all that they can do. Um, and I think that, uh, in the future, I can't really say where I'll be going, but it will probably have something to do with open source, open hardware, sharing. Sharing is a very powerful thing, and sharing in ways that allow people to do business or make money with other people's work. Also, the innovator as an individual in other words, someone who sits in their kitchen and types on their laptop and creates something new that way, rather than the big company as the innovator. Those are the themes that I've been working on, and, and I'll probably continue to do so. Bruce Perrins, thank you so much for contributing to Silicon Minds. Thanks for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. This is Silicon Minds. Other episodes of Silicon Minds can be heard on iTunes and at ConnectedSocialMedia.com. Silicon Minds is a production of Connected Social Media. I'm Jason Lopez. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.